It's Thursday, October 4th, and this is The Daily Dive. We all got the alert yesterday on our phones. The presidential alert, a test of the National Wireless Emergency Alert System. The alert is designed to let the White House inform the entire country of a grave public emergency such as a terrorist attack or invasion. But did you know the long, strange history of alert systems in the country? My producer Miranda joins us for some of the past systems, some of which included buzzers and pink balloons. Next, after months of negotiations, a new bill that will transform the music industry is set to become law very soon. The Music Modernization Act is set to update decades-old copyright laws to catch up to the world of streaming music we all live in now. Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios, joins us to discuss this rare bill in American politics. Everyone seems to like it. Finally, the food industry will be going through some big changes in the coming years as tech innovations are having an impact on what we eat and how food is made. Annie Gasparro, food reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what's on the horizon. 3D printed chicken nuggets, fake shrimp made of algae, and the ability to grow anything anywhere. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There will be a banner that will say presidential alert. That's the category of the type of alert that we're allowed to send nationwide. And then the text and message will say test. This is only a test of the national uh, wireless emergency alert system and no action is, is needed. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to be talking about this presidential alert that went out yesterday. There was a lot of buzz before it, and obviously the noise is annoying. It popped up on everybody's phones. It went out and said, presidential alert. This is a test of the National Wireless Emergency Alert System. No action is needed. Hashtag presidential alert was a trending topic on Twitter. It's the same thing that happens when you get a warning about flash flooding or amber alerts. Those things are usually sent out on a regional or statewide basis. But this thing was sent out to the entire country. It's designed to let the White House inform the country something of a grave public emergency, terrorist attack or an invasion. We don't know what kind, maybe aliens. We've all heard these alerts before. The difference with this one is that you can opt out of other alert systems. This one you couldn't opt out. So everybody was getting it. The country has a long, strange history with these types of alert systems. They've been trying to get them going on since the 50s. So Miranda, tell us a little bit about FEMA's role in this and some of these early systems. You put it best when we were speaking off air. FEMA has kind of been this mysterious doomsday prep wing of the government, which I didn't know about until all this research we had to do for this segment. And since the dawn of the Cold War, they've been trying to figure out the best way to reach the most amount of citizens and let them know, hey, something terrible is about to happen. And like you said, it's been a long, strange history. The first one that they developed was in the early 50s. And at the time, they called it Conrad, which was a mixture of the words control of electromagnetic radiation. And what this would do was upon activation of this warning system, all the radio stations across the country would either shut down or switch formats over to broadcasting from the same two channels. And it would be a recorded message from a guy who was a TV personality at the time and best friends with President Eisenhower, Arthur Godfrey. And he was a trusted voice. He would record this public service announcement. And there are no copies of his audio, by the way, which is very mysterious. And basically just warning everybody to stay calm and that Americans will survive whatever the nuclear war is going to happen. Right. Kind of like what happens now with the emergency alert system. Just a voice comes on and says, hey, it's an emergency. Be calm, et cetera, et cetera. But this one was just funny because it was tied to TV personality, Arthur Godfrey. Yeah. So that was early on in the 50s. And then another system that they had, which I kind of thought was totally ineffective. And I guess that's why they canceled it 
was they were setting up this system of buzzers and pink balloons. What was that? They did it in a really small concentration because this was just a test. This was never anything that was majorly rolled out. But in the small town of Charlotte, Michigan, which happens to be near uh, Civil Defense Agency headquarters at the time, they set up with 500 warning generators. And with this, they distributed just over like a thousand devices to everybody in the town. And they were to plug this into one of their electrical outlets and it, when they did the test of the system, basically all the outlets started buzzing. Yeah. And you were to go, I guess, to your backyard and release a pink balloon. And that <laughs> pink balloons were supposed to signify that something terrible had happened. I mean, that's uh, totally crazy. You can't trust people to be reliable enough to do that. But it was supposed to alert 90% of the country within 30 seconds that something crazy was going on. <laughs> but there is no message attached to it. Right. It's just pink balloons. That means... Mass hysteria would break out. So they canceled that program because it was going to be totally ineffective. And then around the time of Nixon, there was a new system that they were trying to get set up. Richard Nixon and LBJ wanted to develop their own version of it, which they called the Decision Information Distribution System, the DIDS device. (laughs) And what this was is it's something that you can plug into your TV. Like think about a fire stick in the 70s. Basically the same concept. And so you plug this into your TV and what it would do was change the channel. If you had some kind of warning set from Washington, it would get on all the TVs and automatically change the channel to everybody would be watching the same program, informing you of what's going on. But at the same exact time that this was happening, and this is what's leading us to what happened yesterday, the public lost all trust with the government because of what happened with Watergate. And they were very concerned about government having direct access to something that was inside their home. And as you said, people were kind of mad. They don't want the president to be able to buzz your phone whenever he wants. Just to clarify, it's not the president sitting in his office and saying, I'm going to send out this alert. No, there's a process that goes through. He does have to direct FEMA to send it out. So there's a whole process behind it. You know, after that, in the 80s, they settled on the emergency broadcast system, the one that we all know takes over television and everything like that. So, you know, there's this long history that we have in this country of these emergency broadcast systems. This is a new one. I think it's actually a good idea. Everybody always has their cell phones on it. We're hyper-connected. You get notifications on your phone. You can turn on TV. And obviously, if something's breaking, it's going to be on a news station. But it is good to have something direct when you're in your car or you're just walking out for a hike. It's good to have it come to you personally. It's really about how they use it. And then obviously what the emergency is, hopefully aliens don't invade us. Right. And in the event that something were to happen and we get these alerts, they say Americans have about eight to 12 minutes to seek shelter before something happens. And in a life threatening situation that could help. We just don't want to mess it up like Hawaii did the last time saying, you know, incoming attack was happening. Forgot about that. There's a long, strange history of emergency alerts. Thanks, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. Sirius just announced the other day that they're buying Pandora, which is an advertising and streaming first music platform. And so their interests might change over time. Joining us now is Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios. Congress recently passed the Music Modernization Act, which is a rare bill in American politics because everybody seems to like it. The House passed it unanimously. It passed in the Senate. Musicians like it. Producers and and record labels. Everybody seems to like it because it streamlines how everybody's going to get paid with the rise of streaming. 
streaming services like Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, all these places, a lot of artists were getting shorted a lot of times, getting paid cents, pennies or less than pennies for a, a song when somebody would click it. And so this helps streamline that whole process. What do we know about this new act? Well, you're right in that it had unanimous support from almost everybody within the industry. So that's distributors like in restaurants and bars and on radio, as well as streamers. And then, of course, the recording artists and the music rights holders. What we know about the act is that it really streamlines the processes for people who own music and who create music to get paid. It also sets standards for how we're going to pay them and what the rates will be for what are called blanket licenses. So if you're a streamer, instead of having a license for all 12 bajillion, bajillion songs, I don't know, they have a lot of songs, you instead are paying one license to get access to many from a particular industry group, but the rate for at which you're paying is now set through this law. You knew that artists and musicians were complaining for the longest time of not getting paid properly, and with the rise of all these streaming services, nobody was really buying physical copies of music anymore. And it was just clicks and clicks and clicks, and it just turned into a huge mess for the music industry. And they were one of the first ones to pretty much adopt all this on-demand music. Uh, so it put them in a, in a weird position where people weren't getting paid properly and things needed to be updated. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the passage of this act is that these types of industry groups have been lobbying for reform for years. But one of the differences about how it really got through now is that artists were taking to social media. They were becoming activists to make sure that this bill went through. You saw artists like Paul McCartney and Katy Perry who were threatening Liberty Media, which is the parent company of Sirius, when they were trying to push back against the bill. And if it weren't for the advocacy of some of the artists, I don't know that it would have passed. Yeah, why was Sirius Radio, Sirius XM, why were they one of the ones to be pushing back on it? They said that it was going to put them in like a negative position with regards to all this stuff, uh, you know, with regards to their competitors. Why did they feel it was negatively impacting them? Well, what they thought is that the bill did more to benefit some of their competitors, and in particular, radio broadcasters and those who broadcast music out of home, so restaurants, concert venues, etc., than it did to them. It wasn't that they felt like they were going to be so negatively impacted. They just didn't think that there were enough provisions in the bill to give them as many positive points as some of their competitors, and they wanted to be on a little bit more of an even playing field. But, you know, Sirius just announced the other day that they're buying Pandora, which is an advertising and streaming first music platform. And so their interests might change over time. A lot of these rates for all these different services were set differently. Spotify lets you pick the songs individually and Pandora kind of doesn't let you pick the songs. They just pick like a general genre of music or genre from an artist. And so all the rates were different. And this also helped this act also helps modernize that and bring everybody up to speed uh, with the same stuff. And it does have a few provisions about how we hold everyone accountable for this, how we enforce these types of mechanisms. It creates a third party that's going to be able to work with all sides on this economy to ensure that the people who need to get paid get paid in an easy way and the people who need to do the payments get paid in an easy way. So it really is a win-win for almost everyone in the industry. Before this, there was pretty much only two options if you were going to start a streaming service. You could go one way like Amazon Music did and for a very long time, all they would do was manually go through and clear every song before they put it online, which means their music catalog wasn't very consistent. They didn't have everything. Or like Spotify, 
they just set aside a ton of money and said, hey, we're going to get sued when people realize we're playing their stuff and then we can go forward and figure it out that way and get the licenses. Do you think there might be a rise of new streaming services because of all these blanket licenses that they can get now? Someone asked me that earlier today and I said, you know, it will be difficult simply because a lack of regulation in this space has allowed some of these other music streaming services like Spotify and Amazon Music, Apple Music to get very big. It will be very hard for a new streaming service to be able to now build its way up and compete with some of these giants that have gotten so big due to a lack of regulation. So it's not impossible, but they have such a long way to catch up. What's the next step? I know it passed the House and the Senate, went back to the House and got approved there. It just left for the president to sign it? Pretty much. So the president has 10 days to sign it, and it was passed last Tuesday night. So I think he has till about Friday to sign it. It's very much expected that he will sign it. The next big fight is one little provision within MMA around consent decrees. These are like little blanket pieces of regulation that are put out by the Justice Department. The DOJ is trying to get rid of them. That would be very hurtful to the streamers like Pandora and Spotify. And so the next big thing I would look for is the fight around consent decrees, whether or not the DOJ gets rid of them and how hard Spotify, Pandora, and other streamers fight to save them. Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've seen more investments in food technology, I think, because investors are realizing that there's a lot of growth here. Joining us now is Annie Gasparro, food reporter for The Wall Street Journal. So we're going to talk about one of my favorite things, obviously food. I love it. And I love all the technology that is being put behind it. The food industry, the agricultural industry is kind of lagged behind in a lot of technical advancements compared to a lot of other industries. They're gaining steam now. You guys made a report about six technologies that could shake the food world. And among them are 3D printers that are printing out food and like chicken nuggets and things like that. Fake shrimp made out of algae, edible barcodes and uh, facial recognition things for cows, which is uh, just sounds hilarious to me. But let, let's go through some of these. You know, the food industry has been taking a lot of heat recently for, you know, they want healthier ingredients, transparency about where the meals come from, better treatment of animals, all these things. And they're just now getting into the business. I mean, people are investing in food tech more so than ever before. There's like about $2 billion of investment so far this year already. We've seen more investments in food technology, I think, because investors are realizing that there's a lot of growth here. And they obviously want to put their money where they can get a quick return and a strong return. And they see that the food industry has lagged in becoming technologically driven and having transparency throughout the supply chain. So they feel like using technology to capitalize and solve some of the food industry's problems will reap strong returns for them. So what are some of this new tech that is going to have an impact on what we eat and how food is made? The first one that comes up is a 3D food printer. There are a few different companies that are making 3D printers for food, and it works just like you would imagine. Instead of plastic ink, there are ingredients that are put into the canisters that then print out the food. And right now, we're seeing some restaurants and bakeries use these machines to do intricate designs like on desserts and other toppings to fancier meals. Companies called Natural Machines 
is their product is called Fudini. And <laughs> they are looking to make this a home kitchen appliance. Their hope is that in a few years, they'll come out with a home version of this commercial machine and people will be able to make their own foods at home, the kind of foods that you can't normally make at home, like chicken nuggets or a granola bar. Instead of having to buy it, they could put the breadcrumbs in one canister, put the ground chicken in another canister, and their kids can pick a shape and it'll print out chicken nuggets in that shape. There you go. I'm sold already for homemade chicken dino nuggets, you know, instead of having to run to the local store and buy a frozen pack, you can do it at home. So I love those types of innovations. And while the technology might be kind of new and everything, yeah, in a few years down the road, you can imagine this being like a hot seller on Amazon. Another one of the next innovations is uh, getting protein from algae. And a lot of people point to this stuff as possibly solving a global food dilemma because we're running out of land to raise animals for food. And right now that there's there's this big pool of water in, in the desert of New Mexico where they're growing algae for food. The algae push actually comes from research that was done to use algae as a source of biofuel. So it's interesting that what started as a way to solve the fuel crisis is now being looked at to solve the food crisis. And like you said, there's areas like in the desert that you can't grow any crops. So being able to grow algae there on a big algae farm makes use of land that otherwise would be dead land. One of the other ones that was pretty cool too was something called the food computer. And this is an effort to really much grow anything, anywhere, regardless of environment. And Nutella is one of the companies behind really wanting to use some of these types of things. The food computer is similarly being used as a way to try to improve our ability to grow food for the amount of people that our planet is going to have in a few decades. It's also looking to solve problems for companies now. Nutella is one of those. Nutella and anyone that buys hazelnuts buys them from Turkey. That's where the vast majority of the world's hazelnuts are grown. So Nutella wanted to find new places to grow hazelnuts and the food computer is doing a project it's at the MIT lab they can recreate the climate of different parts of the world in a box that will help them find where else in the world they could also grow hazelnuts and this is way cheaper than actually planning test plots all around the world and it works by managing the environment very controlled far more than you can control a greenhouse with dosers that will put in the exact amount of of hydrogen and can recreate some of the different chemicals that would be coming from insects in the area so they can really create the exact environment of other parts of the world to see where they would grow. And then it can also test what the best growing conditions for a tomato would be to make it have the most nutrients possible. Those kind of advancements in technology will help speed up our ability to grow the best tasting and most nutritious I like that idea a lot. I don't know why. The first thing that I thought of, though, was wine and being able to grow, <laughs> you know, a real interesting varietals from Europe or something in a shipping container somewhere in, in a city in, in the U.S. or something like that. So that, that one, Absolutely. you know, the, there's a lot of different possibilities with that one. Annie Gasparro, food reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.